Hello everyone and welcome to episode 19 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this episode, we'll be looking at the sixth sign which Jesus performs in John's Gospel. You may recall that towards the end of his Gospel, John writes, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you might experience the life of the age. In the first sign of John's Gospel, we see Jesus turn water into wine. Then in the second sign, we saw a child who was ill restored to death and a man who was paralytic received the ability to walk in sign number three. So we've seen God's creative wisdom breaking through into the world as people experience a whole new era of health and prosperity. This theme continues through the fourth sign which sees Jesus feed 5,000 people with a tuna sandwich and as a blind man receives his sight in the fifth sign. Through these signs, people are having their eyes open to Jesus' identity as the Christ and the Son of God. But as the narrative progresses, we see that not everyone is happy about this development. The religious leaders of Jesus' day have felt threatened by the revelation of Jesus' identity, which has led them to engage in rivalry with Jesus. We have seen this rivalry bubble and ferment as Jesus performs more signs and more and more people come to believe in him and follow him. In the last podcast, we saw this rivalry escalate to a level which prompted the community to band together against Jesus. They attempted to stone him and ultimately expelled Jesus from their presence. At the end of chapter 10, we are told that Jesus dwells in the desolate places, out in the desert, where John the Baptist also dwelt. But still, many are coming to believe in him and follow him. So even though he's been banished to the outskirts of the religious and social machine, Jesus continues to threaten the religious leader's monopoly over Israelite religion. So let's continue the story now, picking up our reading in chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you and you're going to go back there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. But Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest as in a sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, 
Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But now let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him also. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall not die permanently. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she had heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, this, by this time there will be an odour, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had just died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Okay, so we've got a lot to unpack here. Verse 2 mentions the incident of Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now we're going to read about this incident in the following chapter. So this comment in verse 2 supposes that we already know what's coming. Perhaps things might have gotten a little out of order here, but in any case, we'll get there in the next chapter. So let's move on. In verse 4, when Jesus is told about Lazarus's illness, he says, This illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Recall the last sign which Jesus performed when he caused the blind man to recover his sight. At the beginning of this story, Jesus' disciples ask him why the man was born blind, to which Jesus replies that the man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Remember when we looked at this verse, we considered the idea that God can manifest his creative power even through those things which we regard as limitations. Again in chapter 12 now, Lazarus's sickness will provide an opportunity for God's creative wisdom to break through. Yet for some reason, Jesus seems in no hurry to manifest this creative wisdom. Rather than rushing to see Lazarus, he waits another two days before leaving, and this delay means that Lazarus dies before Jesus gets there. Why does Jesus wait? Does he want Lazarus to die just so that he can raise him to life? Perhaps he's weighing the danger of returning to face his persecutors in Judah against his desire to visit and maybe even heal his sick friend. I don't know. In any case, the writer goes to great lengths to emphasize Jesus' love for Mary, Martha and Lazarus and how he was deeply moved by Lazarus' sickness and death. And in this way, the writer rules out any suggestion that Jesus is nonchalant about Lazarus's condition. If we take a step back, we'll see that Lazarus' experience is much like our experience. Many times we find ourselves trapped in the darkness and we cry out to God for deliverance, but nothing happens. We're left in that place of death. It seems final, complete, irreversible. This is the place where Martha is when out of frustration, she grabs Jesus and says to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But as we've seen in our study of John's gospel, this is exactly the place where God's creative wisdom breaks through. When it seems that the task is insurmountable, when it seems that all is hopeless, that's when we experience God's creative wisdom. In any case, Jesus eventually decides to go and visit Lazarus, despite the danger that awaits him there. When his disciples express their concerns, Jesus replies, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Throughout our reading of John's Gospel, we've interpreted this darkness as the rivalry which characterizes the religious machine of Jesus' day. Jesus' disciples remind him that this religious machine has cast him out and that returning to Judah would be very dangerous indeed. How will Jesus respond? Will he accept his role as an outcast of the religious order? The temptation to submit to the religious machine's characterization of him would be like stumbling in the darkness. In order to avoid stumbling, Jesus encourages his disciples to walk in the light. In this instance, walking in the light means boldly and courageously confronting danger, even if it means acting against the conventional wisdom and beliefs of his community. Perhaps there's something in your life which you feel challenged to do, but you think it's too risky, or maybe everyone around you is telling you it can't be done. Maybe your people tell you, that's not who you are, that's not who we are. We as a tribe just do not do that thing. But maybe, just maybe, that thing 
might be the new thing through which God's creative wisdom breaks through. When Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus is sleeping, of course they think he is speaking about a physical sleep. They don't recognize that Jesus is talking about death. Jesus has to spell it out for his friends that Lazarus has died. When Martha prompts Jesus to raise her brother from the dead, Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. Jesus continues, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall not die permanently. Do you believe this? So this is an interesting statement from Jesus. As we've seen in Jesus' early discussions with the religious leaders, when Jesus talks about death, he is speaking about a spiritual death rather than a physical one. So we need to be careful about how we interpret Jesus' words concerning life and death in this passage. Yes, the story describes Lazarus' physical death and resurrection. But Jesus' words don't make sense if we interpret them as referring to mutually exclusive binary categories of physical life and physical death. If we impose these categories on Jesus' words, then his statement that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die contradicts our experience and the previous line that assumes people who believe in Jesus will die. Maybe it's better to interpret Jesus' words here as referring to a spiritual life and death, which are not necessarily mutually exclusive or final. The life of the age which Jesus has introduced in John's Gospel is something which people experience when they believe and follow Jesus. But Jesus' words here seem to acknowledge that our experience isn't always a linear progression. In other words, the life of faith is not one of onward and upward, a constant steady march towards uber-spirituality. Often it's characterized by peaks and troughs. In times we stumble in the darkness and we need to correct our course, get back in the light and walk. Jesus' statement reminds us that even when we're in the darkest nights, there is a dawn still coming. Martha's response to Jesus is, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This confession of Martha's faith combined with the crowd's question about Jesus' ability to stop Lazarus with dying sets up the narrative for Jesus' sixth sign. Remember in all the previous signs, someone believes and follows Jesus' instruction and that's when God's creative power breaks through. When Jesus commands a stone to be rolled away from the tomb, Martha protests that the smell will be disgusting because Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Jesus reiterates the message of John's gospel saying, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? In other words, it's through faith that God's character is manifest, that his creative wisdom is made known. Upon Jesus' command, Lazarus emerges from the tomb, his full body bound with grave clothes. Lazarus looks like one of those mummies which comes to life and steps out of their coffin to chase people in those horror films. His movements are uncertain. His feet is unsteady. He's blinded by the cloth over his eyes. But Lazarus is alive. He takes his first steps out of the dark tomb 
into the light. Emerging from the death and darkness can often feel like this. We might feel disorientated or struggle to find our feet. We might be tempted to flee back into the tombs, back into the unpleasant yet familiar stench of death and decay. But Jesus challenges us to shuffle forward into the light, as difficult and daunting as that may seem. Once Lazarus makes his way into the light, the burial clothes which have restricted his movements are removed and he enjoys a new found life. But not everyone's happy about Lazarus' new life. Let's read on from verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no longer openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Here we see the chief concern of the religious leaders is that they will lose their position of power and authority over the people. This position of power and authority is the desired object which they are desperate to retain. As long as the people follow the religious leaders and subscribe to their laws and rituals, a measure of peace and order is maintained within the community. Like any other community, the laws and rituals of the Jewish establishment manage the spread of mimetic rivalry and violence. It's like this protective shield which keeps mimetic rivalry from getting out of control. In this way, the religious machine maintains peace and order which is necessary for the religious leaders to retain their position of power and authority. If the people abandon the laws and rituals, mimetic violence would have an opportunity to propagate. There'd be nothing to stop it. The resulting disorder might prompt the Roman government to step in and to remove the religious leaders from their position of power and then give that power and authority to another person. This is exactly what the religious leaders don't want to happen. They want to maintain peace and order, and they know that laws and rituals are a way of doing that. They need peace and order so that they can hang on to the desired object. That is their role of position, a power and authority over the people. Now, as many of the religious leaders express their concerns about this possibility, about this chance that Rome might come and take away their nation, Caiaphas, the high priest, suggests that they could use the confusion and disorder which is mounting, which Jesus has sown among the people, to re-establish order and control over the people. They may be able to save the nation by uniting the people against Jesus and killing him. 
the life of Jesus to save the nation. This is the equation that Caiaphas is presenting to the other Jewish leaders. And this is how the scapegoat mechanism operates. As we have already observed in numerous instances in John's Gospel, the scapegoat mechanism transforms the all-against-all rivalry of the mimetic crisis into an all-against-one rivalry as the community band together to persecute a single scapegoat. According to mimetic theory, through the execution or banishment of the scapegoat, the community purged their mimetic rivalry and re-established peace and order within the community. Although Caiaphas' words, at least at some level, recognised the potential for the scapegoat mechanism to be manipulated for political ends, John tells us that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In other words, John maintains that Caiaphas' words are a divine revelation. He's leaving open the possibility that Caiaphas' self is still blind to the mimetic forces which are at play, the mimetic darkness which surrounds him and influences his actions. In other words, Caiaphas prophesies better than he understands. So the religious leaders listen to Caiaphas and they make plans to kill Jesus, which forces Jesus into exile, away from the central religious establishment, back out into the countryside. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can do so by joining the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.